This episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by WCScreens.com. For wholesale pricing, nationwide shipping, exemplary service, check out my pal Tony and the rest of his team at WCScreens.com for the best in screen printing and embroidery. And on with the show. Today on Onward to Victory, we are going to talk about Chet Grant. Have you heard of him? This is the man that the legendary Araparsegian once wrote that if there was a man living or dead who knows more about Notre Dame football than Chet, it's a better kept secret than the name of George Gipps' girlfriend. Though tongue-in-cheek as that may sound, Chet is one of the most dynamic people in the history of the program. Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Irish fans, and welcome to the latest offering of Onward to Victory. Latest? Yes. Timeless? I sure hope so. My name is Alex Painter, and welcome to the show and episode number 59. And since you're here, I'll give you a gentle reminder to go back and listen to the last episode, Onward to Victory's State of the Program Address. I was joined by a new member of the team, Matt Gehring, and we broke down just that, the State of the Program. This included new members of the coaching staff who are excited about, as well as the incoming class, the 2022 schedule, all that fun stuff. Matt is incredibly sharp and knowledgeable on these matters. So go give that thing a listen, and it's available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. But hey, thanks for being here once again. And speaking of new also, head over to onwardtovictory.blog. It's the show's new website where Matt and I and Perhaps a guest columnist here and there will be sharing even more Irish content with all you friendly people. Right now, there's a short read up there to explain why we are heading in this direction. But I would be remiss not to mention that the website is sponsored wholly by WCScreens.com, the gold standard of the screen printing and embroidery industry. So just make sure you make your way over to the site. Again, it's onwardtovictory.blog. Give it a follow or bookmark, however it is that you remember to go to websites because we are really, really excited about this. But in addition to our pals at WCScreens.com, I would like to give major props to the Consensus All-Americans, both past and present, who have donated to the show. The current Consensus All-Americans include Mr. Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, and Will Fuller of Redondo Beach, California. Not for long, though. He is moving back to the Midwest. But do you want to be a consensus All-American yourself? Well, I appreciate it. Head over to paypal.me slash onwardtovictory or patreon.com slash onwardtovictorypodcast. And that is where those theoretical tip jars reside, but any support is appreciated. And if you aren't in a position to donate, that's all right, too. Keep listening to the show. Share it with your friends. We are growing leaps and bounds, and it's because of you, loyal sons and daughters of Aaron. So, what are we going to talk about today? 
The topic of today's show has been touched on briefly a few times, and that is Chet Grant. So believe me when I tell you, you are actually hard-pressed to find an individual who was more devoted to Notre Dame athletics, particularly football, in history than Chet. There's a good chance you probably haven't heard of him, or perhaps you've heard his name, but not much else resonates. He was an absolute Irish lifer, though. So let me paint a quick picture here. Chet was kind. He was scrappy. He was opinionated as hell. He played for Notre Dame, coached at Notre Dame, became Notre Dame's first historian. When Frank Leahy, Eric Parsegian, or Dan Devine needed someone to share institutional memory or needed a dignitary for a banquet, the snow-haired Grant would be summoned. Hell, he even covered Notre Dame for the local paper before he enrolled as a student, and he wrote the account of Notre Dame football pre-Rockney. And it was writing and philosophizing that he loved. And I've bought Chet's book, it's called Before Rockney at Notre Dame, three times. And personally, I think it is the most unique book about Notre Dame football ever written. About an era of the program not often discussed. I originally found it and then bought it because I had a hunch I could use it for an episode about Irish fullback Lewis Red Salmon which proved to be correct in spades, and that eventually became episode number 32, which was released back in October of 2020. Now again, aside from just being really useful for that episode in particular, I was absolutely captivated by this book and how it reads. It doesn't read like typical sports nonfiction. It's kind of flowery, prose-like, even poetic. It seems like every single word was meticulously chosen for a very specific purpose, and I think it's an irresistible read. After I read the first copy I bought, I ended up giving it to my younger brother Colton, as I thought it'd be something he'd enjoy. Then I ended up buying a second one to replace the first one. And then last year, while visiting my pal Augie at Augie's locker room, I found a copy on his Irish bookshelf, but... This one was actually autographed by Chet himself, Uh, so I just had to have it. (laughs) But uh, enough about my book purchasing habits. Let's dive in, shall we? I give you Grace and Gumption, the Chet Grant story, right after this. Donald Chester Grant was born in Defiance, Ohio on February 22nd, 1892. So as of this recording, we actually just passed his 130th birth date. He was most commonly called, you guessed it, Chet. If you're thinking Defiance, Defiance, uh, where have I heard that one before? Well, if you're an ardent listener of the show... That is also where the first family of Notre Dame, the Miller brothers, were also born and raised. And we talked about them back in episode number 51 in October 2021. But to quickly brush up, Defiance is located in northwest Ohio, about 50 miles southwest of Toledo. So in the modern day, it's only actually about a two-hour car drive from South Bend. 
But anyway, Chet was literally born around sports. His father and his uncle were huge baseball fans and would organize and manage semi-pro and minor league teams all over Ohio, Indiana, and Michigan. Although Chet is primarily known for his involvement in football, we will see time and time again, baseball was absolutely a passion of his as well. So how does the Defiance boy come to South Bend? Chet's uncle, Angus Allen Grant, joined the minor league South Bend Greenstockings, later known as the Greens, as a player manager in 1896. Shortly thereafter, Chet's father, Donald Grant, whose middle name was actually Angus, replaced his brother as manager of the Green Stockings after Angus had left to pursue another opportunity in Dayton, Ohio. So just as a quick review of names, we have Chet, who is our main guy here. He was born Donald Chester Grant. His father was also named Donald, and his full name was Donald Angus Grant. And then we have his brother, Chet's uncle, named Angus Allen Grant. So we've got some double dipping of names here, but I just wanted to say that for a little bit more clarity. Before we move Chet and the rest of his family to South Bend for our story, I want to make a quick note here about Uncle Angus. So Uncle Angus played minor league baseball until 1912, when he was 38 years old. He played a lot of second base, but he could play pretty much every position. But he did bounce around quite a bit around the Central League and also the American Association, Western Association, and the Interstate League. So these are all minor league circuits and for the most part staples of Midwest baseball during this time. But he was a two-time teammate of Nick Altrock, once in 1898 with the Grand Rapids Cabinet Makers, sweet name, and in 1902 with the Milwaukee Brewers, of course, before they were a major league team. But Altrock famously made it to the Chicago White Sox and played major league baseball in four different decades. And between 1904 and the 1906 seasons, he actually won 62 games in that three-year span and won one in the 1906 World Series for the White Sox. So in doing some digging on Angus, I thought that was actually worth mentioning. But Angus, according to StatsCrew.com, compiled a minor league managing record of 569 wins versus 550 losses. That is a ton of baseball, folks. And as it were, I'm a huge baseball fan, so I thought it was definitely worth sharing. But Chet's father also managed the green stockings, and he would actually work as a clerk at the Sheridan Hotel in South Bend during the off-season. This was actually fairly common for this era. Minor league baseball teams would find their players or managers jobs for the weekends and even again, sometimes in the off-season. And this was just the case with Donald Grant. So in June of 1902, he sent for Chet, his wife, and the rest of the family to make their move to South Bend also. So Chet was 10 years old at this time. But eventually, his father became one of the managers of the Sheridan Hotel. Now, if you're trying to figure out why I keep bringing it up, well, at the time, the Sheridan Hotel was one of the nicest hotels in South Bend, and possibly even the northern half of the state for that matter. But after the Sheridan Hotel was demolished around 1920, 
the LaSalle Hotel was built in the exact same spot. So, if you're driving into South Bend from US 31 from the south for a football game, or if you're just cruising around downtown, it's pretty hard to miss the enormous nine-story complex right across from the river and right next to the Morris Performing Arts Center in downtown South Bend. That, my friends, is the LaSalle, where the Sheridan Hotel used to stand. Anyway, that is how the Defiance Boy came to South Bend. But almost immediately, Chet gravitated towards the activities on Notre Dame's campus, particularly those played on Notre Dame's athletic facility, which was called Cartier Field. While at first he admits most of the sports action he digested was through the local paper, by the end of the first decade of the 1900s, he was a regular on campus, and he took in as many sporting events as he could. You would see the teenage Chet Granite nearly all of them, he would later say. But the connection between Grant and that campus was near instant and deep. After watching his first Notre Dame football game, he recalled the sheer excitement nearly two decades later in the 1920 Football Review. He said, quote, There was no fence post or tree along the Notre Dame stretch from the entrance of the university grounds to the streetcar line, which I did not push aside with a right or left jab as I cleverly evaded its fancy dive at my legs, end quote. So haven't we all been there? You know, throwing a, a juke move on a tree or doing a spin move around a chair at the kitchen table? Chet fondly remembered the 1909 team, the first Notre Dame team that beat Michigan, and also the first team to be called the Fighting Irish in the press. Keep in mind, this would have been when Grant was a high school student. So speaking of, while he was a student at South Bend High School, his gift for riding was rewarded, and he was actually given a job by the South Bend Tribune in the South Bend News Times, as well as his own school newspaper to cover Notre Dame sporting events. Now, within just a couple years, he was the sports editor of the South Bend Tribune. I mean, he was still just a teenager. But as famed Notre Dame coach Dan Devine said later, quote, Chet was reporting on Notre Dame victories while Rockney was working in the United States Post Office in Chicago, end quote. And I bring up Rockney here specifically for two reasons. Number one, many folks and historians kind of attribute the arrival of Rockney on campus as kind of the start of Notre Dame football. Obviously, this isn't quite so, and with Chet not only living nearby, but also being paid to be the school's athletic beat writer, he would later parlay all that experience to be the authority of pre-Rockney Notre Dame football history. So, number two, Rock entered Notre Dame as a 22-year-old freshman because, yes, as Divine alluded to, uh, he worked in the post office, Rock did, to save up money for tuition after high school for college. So our man Chet Grant actually may have taken a similar approach. He came from humble means and he really lived humbly for the rest of his life. But he continued to work for the local paper 
and obviously stayed involved in Notre Dame athletics in a professional capacity. So he would have covered Rockney as a journalist. But he takes the, well, let's just call it the Rockney route to get to Notre Dame. He enrolls at Notre Dame in 1915 when he was 23 years old. Legend has it that it was actually football coach Jess Harper who encouraged Grant to attend Notre Dame in the afternoons while working for the newspaper in the mornings. So surprisingly, he actually doesn't play football or any sports his first year at school. But why? I actually couldn't find a reason, but maybe it's partially due to his small size. Decades after his playing career was over, Bill Moore, who actually just retired from the South Bend Tribune in January of 2021, wrote in 1986 that Chet Grant may have been one of the smallest football players in Notre Dame history at 5 foot 6, 138 pounds. That is a really small man. But perhaps that was it. But as Moore also points out, Chet was gutsy. He wrote that, quote, Chet was always a feisty little man, even called a little pissant by some of his friends out at Notre Dame. But it was probably out of necessity since he had to be one of Notre Dame's smallest players, end quote. It may have been that gumption that took him out to the gridiron as a 24-year-old sophomore. Though he was undersized, he was actually very fast. In fact, he was described as blazing fast. And that is what head coach Jess Harper and assistant Knute Rockney loved about him. So get a load of this one. Chet is installed as a punt returner for the 1916 season. The very first game of the season is against Case, which would eventually become Case Western Reserve and is, of course, located in Cleveland. But possibly the very first touch of Grant's career, he takes a punt return 95 yards for a touchdown. Aside from what the school paper called a world of speed, Grant may have just been able to tuck behind some of the larger blockers and just take off. And Notre Dame won that football game 48 to 0. And Chet's punt return was the longest for a touchdown in school history. And that is a record that stood for 73 years until Ricky Waters took a punt return 97 yards in 1989 against SMU. So that's pretty wild, but it is still the second longest punt return for a touchdown in program history. And for the record, Chet had passed away only three years earlier, so his record stood his entire lifetime. But that 1916 squad went 8-1, and one, and their only loss was against a very tough Army squad. But the Football Review noted that, quote, Grant will be back for two more years, and again, Notre Dame can consider itself fortunate, end quote. And I will also submit for the public record that Chet was a member of Notre Dame's basketball team as well. But after two years at Notre Dame, the fate struck for Chet, and for that matter, millions more across the country and world. And that would be the entry of the United States into World War I. Not only did Chet join up, but halfback Arthur the Flying Dutchman Bergman, backup fullback Fred Slackford, 
and John Meager, and many others did as well. In fact, the 1917 Football Review commented that, quote, the Notre Dame squad has given nobly of her 1916 squad to Uncle Sam, end quote. Also printed on the June 8, 1918 issue of the school newspaper was not only Grant's name, but the 289 other Notre Dame students who had enlisted to serve during World War I. So in short, Chet missed the entire 1917, 1918, and 1919 seasons due to his service for the country. By the time he returns to campus to suit up for the Irish again, he is 28 years old. Isn't that something? The Football Review of 1920 commented that, quote, Chet Grant has returned to us this year after playing the game over there as a lieutenant, end quote. Chet may have left campus when Jess Harper was head coach, but that mantle was passed to his understudy, Rockney, by the time Chet returned. And if you really think about it, Chet's only about four years younger than Rockney. And speaking of Rockney, when Chet was asked decades later about his old coach, Chet said that he, quote, loved that man, Rockney. I think the thing I most admired about him is that he could be humble. He wasn't above that, end quote. So on that 1920 team, he is the backup quarterback, though he still sees time as a punt returner. And he actually does get to start at quarterback during the last game of the season, a 25-0 victory over Michigan Agricultural College, now of course known as Michigan State. The 1920 season is, of course, a special one. Not only does Notre Dame claim a national championship, but George Gipp is named a first-team Walter Camp All-American shortly before his death at age 25. So yeah, Chet was there to see it all. In fact, almost five decades after the fact, Chet called Gipper a, quote, genius and said that, quote, nothing ever rattled George Gipp, end quote. And Chet wrote a wonderful essay for the 1920 Football Review because, again, our guy loves to write, as we already know. But Here's what he said being a Notre Dame man meant to him and what he thought of his place on such a special team meant. He wrote, quote, I have not as yet made my mark. In being human, I want name and fame. Yet, I would not exchange what I have now, this opportunity to observe and partake in, with a sense of experience and appreciation which only experience can give, Notre Dame's splendid spirit, to enjoy her association and live her life. Verily, I would not barter my obscure place on the football team of 1920 for that which the world calls success. I am glad I came back. I wish I could stay. And when I do finally go for good, I shall ask no greater honor than to be considered friend and comrade by my teammates. To have Notre Dame and all her people ever willing to think of me as having been true to the traditions of Notre Dame football. As having been, in my poor way, a Notre Dame man. End quote. And that was really good. But 
Chet Grant is actually the starting quarterback the following season, 1921, for Coach Rockney. At age 29, I imagine he is the oldest starting quarterback in Notre Dame history, and perhaps the smallest. And that team went 10-1, losing only to Iowa by a score of 10-7. Chet was actually placed on the Indianapolis Stars All-State second team. And thus, Chet's playing career at Notre Dame was over, and he graduated from Notre Dame in 1922 at 30 years old. But our story is far from over. According to Chet, he worked three score jobs during his life. These are his words, and of course a score is 20. If that were true, that's a lot of jobs. But in the early 1930s, he worked as a press agent for the Chicago Shamrocks, which was a team in the American Hockey Association. He also worked as a scout for the Cleveland Rams of the NFL, but he also worked as an encyclopedia salesman, a cherry tree sprayer. He taught school, delivered groceries out of a horse-drawn cart. He worked for the South Bend Waterworks. But one of his jobs was serving former four horsemen turned Irish head coach Elmer Layden as one of his backfield coaches. This was a role that Chet held from 1934 through 1940. He was actually working for a South Bend newspaper before he got the call to be an assistant. His new boss, Layden, told the South Bend Tribune in 1934 that, quote, We decided our greatest need as a staff is an old coach who had backfield experience. Chet Grant links the present regime to not only the early post-war period, but also to the immediate pre-war stage of Notre Dame football. And he combines this association with the necessary knowledge of basic backfield play, end quote. I can respect this. It almost seems like Elmer not only wanted a backfield assistant, but also kind of a program historian as well. And this is, of course, well before this position was ever even thought of. So I may have been reading into the job description a little too closely, but I don't think I've missed the mark on how valuable and what value that Chet brought to Elmer's staff. And of course, a theme that comes up time and time again, which is Chet Grant writing, I'd be remiss not to mention also that he and Elmer teamed up for a column in the famed Saturday Evening Post. But uh, buckle in for this anecdote. This is courtesy of Murray Sperber and his history, Shake Down the Thunder. But after the 1940 season for the Irish had concluded, Chet actually went down to New Orleans to watch the upstart Boston College Eagles, who, in just two seasons, had quickly become a college football powerhouse. In that particular game, Boston College beat number four ranked Tennessee to lay claim to a national championship. Listen to this, though. Grant becomes completely smitten with Boston College's head coach. He actually wrote Notre Dame's then-vice president, John J. Cavanaugh, imploring him to hire the coach and to relieve Elmer Layden of his duties and to clean out the entire coaching staff. Though this meant that he would lose his job on Layden's staff, Grant felt that the college should just push all their chips in the middle of the table for Boston College's coach. That was, of course, Frank Leahy. 
Chet wrote to Father Kavanaugh, quote, I became convinced that Leahy is a coach of destiny. The guy is there, John. Believe me, the guy is there, end quote. Though Chet knew that the hiring of Leahy certainly meant an end to his own Notre Dame coaching career and something that would probably put him in a financial bind, he had a healthy obsession and such a love for Notre Dame football becoming a success again, like when he was playing under Rockney, he would sacrifice his own career in the coaching ranks at the school for the right guy. So needless to say, Leahy was hired, Layden was relieved of his duties, but he soon took a job as commissioner of the National Football League, so he landed on his feet. But Elmer and Chet went 47-13-3 together with the program. But hey, he was exactly right about Leahy, wasn't he? And Chet stuck closely around Notre Dame during the Leahy era. He wrote a weekly column he called Off the Hat with Chet Grant, which he discussed Irish football. However, it was in the mid to late 1940s that he kind of followed a family tradition and got into the professional baseball foray. Do you remember the movie, A League of Their Own, about the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League? Well, for two seasons, 1946 and 1947, he actually managed the South Bend Blue Sox of the AAGPBL. He commandeered them to two consecutive playoff appearances and an overall record of 127 in 96. The following year, 1948, he led the Kenosha Comets. But hey, to be fair, Chet did once say that his life was a meandering route that would take two days to talk about. But since we've talked about Chet's feistiness, I guess I should include that he was once suspended when ushers and policemen had to restrain him from going after an umpire after a game when his Kenosha Comets were playing the Muskegon Lassies. Chet actually followed the umpire into the dressing room where the fight continued. Actually, Chet reputedly took some swings at the umpire, but the local newspaper wanted to make it clear that Chet was in the right. But Chet stuck around South Bend for most of his adult life throughout the 1950s and 60s, and just as the program continued its ascent throughout the Leahy and Araparsegian years, he was widely regarded as a living, breathing walking Notre Dame encyclopedia. Which, of course, is fairly ironic because one of his many odd jobs was that he used to sell encyclopedias door-to-door. Now, Chet was also a little bit different in this regard as well. Not only did he rely heavily on his remembered experiences with the Irish, but he was constantly researching in the archives to gain new knowledge as well. Because, let's be honest here, we all know those kind of people who are kind of the, well, I was there, you can't tell me nothing new about it, types. This was not our pal Chet Grant. He wove together Notre Dame narratives that relied on equal parts lived experiences, but also copious research. He was a lifelong learner, something I think we should all aspire to be. And he never did it for the money either. In fact, late in life, while working on his book, He was living with his sister just a few blocks from campus. Chet Grant was never somebody who felt a strong sense of financial security during his life. And in 1968, at age 76, mind you, he finished and released Before Rockney at Notre Dame. 
published through Icarus Press. Folks, it's a book that is really hard to describe, despite its incredibly straightforward title, but it's a history that can feel like a a first-person narrative, philosophy, poetry, or even religion at times. But Chet does it right. If you haven't read the work, you got to check it out. I put it up there with one of the most important books on Notre Dame football ever written. And yes, his style does take a moment to get used to. But it is well worth the time if you want to open your mind to this era of Notre Dame football. So Notre Dame probably made this man's entire life when they made him officially the first program historian and curator of the university's sports collection when he was in his 70s. Talk about a very astute role for a lifelong and humble Notre Dame man. And that's a role he actually served until he finally retired in 1976 when he was 84 years old. Chet Grant died on July 24th, 1985, at age 93. It was late in his life that someone asked him if he was a big star for Notre Dame during the Rockne era, to which he replied in true, humble, yet witty Chet Grant fashion, quote, a big star? Hell no. How can you be a big star when you only stand five foot six and three quarters? Ah, that's awesome. But Chet Grant feels like he has been widely forgotten by many. So let's not forget his critical place in Notre Dame history. Let's make him that big star. And I'll be right back. Irish fans, I can't lie to you. That is an episode that I have been really waiting to do for a long time. And I can't lie to you. As we sit here in episode wrap, it just feels good. It feels fulfilling. It feels satisfying. I think that we did it right. And I think he got the justice and the due he deserved and really probably hasn't received in quite some time. So that is our pal, Chet Grant. I really hope you enjoyed that. So thank you so much for tuning in today, folks. Now, please, however you listen to your podcast, make sure you are subscribing or following the show. That way you are alerted to all the new episodes right when they come out. And of course, you can stay on top of all of the latest if you go follow the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Onward to Victory Podcast. If you're thinking to me, Alex, I haven't had a Facebook page in three years. Facebook is for the birds. Hey, I understand. But hey, don't forget, we also have a new website, onwardtovictory.blog, presented by our friends at wcscreens.com. So go follow and bookmark that page. We have St. Patrick's Day coming up. We have the spring game coming up. We got spring football. That website is going to be hopping here soon, thanks to my pal Matt Gehring. And also, I'll be on there contributing as well. So, that, again, that is onwardtovictory.blog. I'd like to take a moment here to thank the Consensus All-Americans, those who monetarily support the show and keep the Subway alumni train on the tracks. And those are my friends, Michael Finan, Brad Glazier, and Will Fuller, and lest we forget, 
WCScreens.com, the gold standard in the screen printing and embroidery industry. And that is some of the serious juice here behind the scenes powering the show. I'd also like to thank my pal Joseph Rakish. It's his song, Knut Rockney, that serves as the show's theme song. You can get on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube. I guess however you listen to music, man, it's there. Joseph Rakish, Knut Rockney. And finally, if you'd like to visit one of the show's tip jars, we have paypal.me slash onward to victory and patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. Go in there, chip in a few bucks, get recognized as a consensus All-American. Again, keep the lights on around here and keep the show running. Any any support's graciously appreciated and gets put right back into the show. So with that, I am actually going to sign off here for episode number 59 of your favorite Notre Dame football podcast since 2019. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, folks, go Irish.